dive into something uh, that is unique for the Unpill podcast. We're not talking about a specific healthcare concern. We're not talking about anxiety, depression, etc. We're talking about the ugly side of billing. And why are we talking about this? Because Tracy, who's joining us today, blew my mind in a conversation not only about what she sees in the business she runs, she's the executive vice president of Role of Health and understands and sees building from a unique, unique perspective. She personally had an issue, has seen many issues. It then pushed me and triggered me to look at this a little deeper. And I learned by doing some simple Google searches that 66% of American personal bankruptcies are caused by healthcare costs. People that can't afford to pay to stay alive. They literally are at the last tail end of being able to pay for the medications, etc. That took me down this rabbit hole of looking further. Why was this happening? You know, how is it possible that the wealthiest civilization that's ever existed, 66% of their population has a bankruptcy because they can't pay to stay healthy? And Tracy, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. So Tracy Wood is the executive vice president of Rolla Health. And you're going to hear a little bit about why she has access to information that general people don't. Uh, but this started in a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about your own personal issues and journey. So why don't we start with that? And what did you go through? And, you know, I wasn't always in healthcare, right? I, I was in information technology for the majority of my career. And I went in and went into real estate and became a broker. And um, it wasn't until February of 2007, when my eldest sister died of a drug overdose, that my entire focus changed. I saw somebody like my sister. My sister was poor. Uh, she was schizophrenic. And she became a huge casualty of the American healthcare system. When, when you're poor in this country, you don't get the same health care as somebody right. that, that has a reasonable job or a reasonable living. Um, and, you know, while most people like to think, well, you know, all these people get everything for free. No, they really don't. Um, and I learned all of that in the very beginning. And so when Jackie died, I started doing a ton of research. Um, I looked into online behavioral health. At that time, there wasn't any. I looked into episodic care online. There wasn't any. And I looked into um, how to get things like um, insurance for people that don't have the kind of money that they need to pay for insurance. And of course, Obamacare was a new thing back then, right? Mm -hmm. It was becoming a thing in, in 2008, 2010. Um, and when you read the first version of Obamacare, it sounded good in theory, but the thing that struck me was the majority of the hospitals and healthcare systems in America are nonprofit. Now, that's really kind of subjective, <laughs> considering <laughs> they charge $180,000 for, you know, a robotic prosthetic surgery, but it gets carved out to $7,000. So there's profit in there somewhere right. for somebody. So I started doing a lot of research and I found that 66% um, of the bankruptcies in America, not 66% of the country's bankrupt, but of the bankruptcies filed for persons all stem from healthcare bills. And prior to the last administration, that was always written off. Right. As of 2018, you can no longer bankrupt and get forgiven on medical bills in America. They so changed that. So now your house so is exposed, everything's exposed. Your house is exposed, all of your assets, et cetera. And it never used to be that way. So you have to kind of back up a little bit to see where the mess really came from. And in, I think it was 2008 or 2010, a study was done by the American Association of Registered Nurses. And the study was to see out of all of the hospitals and medical centers across the country, how much of the philanthropic remuneration for the tax forgiveness was being made. And they found that 96% of the medical centers, this is UCLA Med, this is University of Chicago, University of Pittsburgh, Cedar sinai 96% of them had given back $0 in remuneration. That study was published in a book by, uh, I think it was Dr. Uh, Rosenthal, Elizabeth Rosenthal, and it, uh, it's called An American Sickness. Wow. So I, I got Elizabeth's book and I went through and I read and the numbers were staggering. And when you looked at these these huge centers that got 10, 12 billion dollars worth of tax forgiveness, 
because they were a nonprofit, yet their community and the, the, the poorest of their community weren't getting any of these services forgiven. It became, it became really concerning to me. So in early, um, earlier this year, I had to have uh, a surgery done. I had a tumor in my face and they said, hey, it's gotta come out, right? Okay, no problem, let's get it on. I have health insurance. So I'm standing in line getting my COVID test on January 3rd and I get a phone call from the facility. Now, the medical facility that did this is one of the largest medical facilities and nonprofits in the country. Mm-hmm. And their office called me, and I don't think I can say their name on here because we might <laughs> have a little bit of a problem, but their office called me and the gentleman said, hey, I want to let you know, tomorrow when you check in to the center, you need to bring your deductible, which by the way is $2,500, and 20% of the surgery. And I said, well, how much is the surgery? He goes, it's 12,500. I said, so I have to bring a bit, essentially about $4,800. He says, yes. I said, well, how do you know that my surgery is only gonna be 2,500? And he says, well, that's how much they are. I said, well, what if I have a heart attack on your table? Hmm. He goes, what? I said, yeah, I go, you know, I'm old, right? I'm gonna be 55 (laughs) this year. I go, anything could happen. And he goes, ma'am, I don't understand the question. I said, well, son, it's really simple. If somebody dies in the middle or starts to die in the middle of your surgery, you guys are going to revive them, right? CPR will be performed. uh, You know, heart equipment will be brought in. There'll be some type of an emergency code response in the hospital. He goes, well, absolutely. I said, well, how much does that cost? He says, "I, I still, I'm not clear. I said, it's real simple. I said, it's like going out to dinner. I said, do you pay for dinner at the maitre d' station when you check in for your reservation? He says, well, no. I said, then why in the world would I pay a check that I don't have yet? Right. So he got very quiet. I said, and by the way, young man, you're not allowed to do what you just did. I said, in this country, there's certain rules. This is not an elective surgery. I'm not having a facelift. I said, this is a surgery for a mass in my face that has to be then sent to pathology. We have to find out if, you know, I've got something horrible or not. I said, it's not an elective. I said, and you are not legally allowed to make this phone call. I said, how many more people are coming in to have surgery in your facility tomorrow? And he said, well, I can't share that information. I said, have you called all of them like you called me? And he said, I'm going to have a supervisor call you back. I said, I bet you are. So I got my COVID test. I went on my way. Sure enough, a supervisor is blowing up my phone within about 15 minutes. And I said to her the same thing. I said, what he did is not allowed. She goes, oh, you're absolutely right. I am so sorry. That was a mistake. You know, he's new here. Oh, wow. I bet he is. I said, and I bet he's called another 12 people that are having that same surgery tomorrow. And she said, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. I said, okay, great. I show up for my surgery. They never asked me for a dime. So I'm sitting in the waiting room and I'm waiting to go back and get, you know, prepped. And another patient comes in. And again, it's COVID. So we had right. to be separated. But I hear the gal say, um, your deductible and your copay is X amount of dollars. And the guy handed her a check. And I thought, why don't more Americans know that this is not lawful? This is why what started as Obamacare, this is why that started. Now, it's been adulterated to death and we can blame everybody on both sides of the aisle, but it's still not allowed. Yet hospitals are doing it. Why are hospitals doing it? I found out. So about three weeks after my surgery, I got a bill and there's a bill through Blue Cross and it says the surgery was 12,500, exactly what they told me. But then there was a carve out and the carve out was the piece that Blue Cross said that facility was not allowed to charge. And they carved out $9,000. From 12, from 12, From 12, five, leaving 3,500. My 20% of that is $700. So they were up. 
<laughs> so they, up front, we're asking you to put down the 20% on the 12.5. So you would have given them 4,800. I'd have given them 4,800. The whole bill was 35. My portion of it, because I had had picked up a prescription a day before, had met some of the deductible. I literally ended up paying these guys by the time it was over less than $1,000 aggregate. And that included for the labs that were billed separate, the CT that was billed separate, and the uh, the medication and the aftercare. So out of pocket went from 4,800 to $1,000. Well, yeah, but remember, the 4800 included just the surgery. Right. I had another bill for $3,500 for a CT. That ended up costing me $253. That is insane. And so the, the, the difference between your experience and everybody else is they just didn't know. And they just went, yeah. Hey. And and the medical facilities, they're they're getting hip to this. So whereas before, you never talked about money until after it was over. Right. Right. Because someone can have a heart attack and they get to bill extra for that, even if you die. So that conversation changed to, well, let's stop losing so much in these carve outs and let's get it from the participant up front. And let's tell them we're going to withhold treatment if they don't pay. So the and the carve out. So what the insurance company is saying is, hey, you want to do business with us? We understand what this stuff costs, but we're just not willing to pay you that amount because we bring you so much volume. We, we'll bring you the customers, but you got to give us like wholesale pricing. So the value presented to the customer is twelve five, but they paid so much. So in between, what's happening is these guys are saying, "Well, how do I double dip and charge them what I'm going to charge them?" But also to you, the consumer, present the retail price and get some get a piece of that, even though it's not due to me. And, you know, most consumers, they, they, they think, listen, if I pay for my insurance, if I buy my Aetna or my Blue or my Kaiser, I don't have to worry about this extra stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, you do have to worry about it now. Because if you, God forbid, have a heart attack in America, you're going to be a quarter of a million dollars in billable. It costs more to stay in a hospital in some of the poorest areas in California than it costs to stay at the plaza. Wow. Now think about that. A suite at the plaza, you're going to be, you know, good four or five grand a night. Yeah. It's more expensive to have a bed in a hospital. So now how, going back to the nonprofit stuff, how do you get to, so the, the pricing is insurance companies dictate what they're willing to pay. There's a retail, right? Insurance companies say, well, I don't care what your retail is. I'm going to carve out this much and this is what you actually get. But you can present to your client that you build for this much so that they feel good. Uh, how do you actually come up with as a hospital this amount per, is it because that's the deal that was made with insurance companies at six, $7,000 a night is what's appropriate? So there's a, a little lesser known document that the majority of Americans have never heard of. And that's a DISO master. Never heard of what, it. <laughs> what's the DISO master? Uh, in fact, I think you just made that up. It doesn't even yeah, sound yeah. real. <laughs> right. I'm going to get t-shirts. Um, <laughs> So the DISO master is designed to be kind of like the pricing guide. So when you go buy a car and there's that big sticker okay, and at the top, it says MSRP is X number of dollars. And then if you get this piece, it's this. If you get nav, it's this. If you get, you know, lights underneath the headlamps that have your logo, it's this. And it's all pieced out. DISO master is the same idea. So if you have a heart attack, there's a certain price. Well, if you have a heart attack and you need a specific type of medication, it gets assigned another CPT code. Mm -hmm. Well, CPT codes are where the Disselmaster breaks apart. So a regular heart attack and a heart attack without, you know, the need for certain types of apparatus, they're all built differently and they all have different coding. Hmm. So hospitals and doctor's offices got really, really educated on how to code things using the ICD-10 system and the CPT system. Mm -hmm. And that's how they make sure that they can bill for every single thing. Well, at one time you used to get a list of everything that happened in the hospital. So I had a quarter of a million dollar appendicitis, probably one of the biggest bills <laughs> I've ever paid. Well, my appendix had ruptured in 2013, I think it was, and I just thought I didn't feel well. And I had no idea that it had actually ruptured and that I was becoming septic. It took me two days to figure out I had a problem. By the time I got to the hospital, my appendectomy was now an emergency. 
I had a fever and it was not good. So I ended up signing a bunch of paperwork on the way in. Now, mind you, I have been medicated with a high level narcotic. I don't okay. have glasses on because I'm in an emergency situation and I can't see a thing. So they're pointing as I'm scribbling. I have no idea what I said. Unbelievable. I woke up 14 days later. So during that time, I was in ICU. I was exceedingly sick. They had to put tubes down. It was just ridiculous, right? So if you think you have got an appendicitis, please go get it checked. Don't wait. It's stupid. Um, but then I had to have a couple subsequent surgeries to drain this pocket of sepsis that was sitting right above my heart. So I got it all done and I came out 14 days later. The bill was over a quarter of a million dollars. And it literally said uh, emergency appendectomy. And then it had the, the procedure for, they had to put it a pick line because I kept collapsing IVs. I think I went through 11 IVs or something. So they have just the big things listed. And then there's a whole bunch of space on my bill and there's nothing there. And then there's just another big number at the bottom and it was $240,000 and change. So I called up the hospital because I've got to pay 20% of this. Okay. So that's 48 grand. Oh, wow. so I call up the hospital and I said, what's all this space? What are these numbers with nothing? Well, you know, that CPT code is for oxygen and that CPT code is for bandages and that one. And I said, no, 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 no. You guys send me everything. I said, so go into the DISO master and print out every single thing that you guys coded. I want the explanation. I want the detail and I want the code. And I want to know what you build for each of those things. I never got another bill. I never got another communication from the hospital. So hold, for the, the 240K bill disappeared? $240,000 bill was processed. Uh, Blue paid 123,000 of it. And there was no net sum from me at all. So you, you paid nothing? Nothing. And, and, and you... really, I mean, even if they had brought it down to a buck 23, right? I should have had to pay about $24,000. Right. So just by you asking, I, right? Because I asked, you asked the question, the bill got cut in half and then they were too scared to even present you 20% of that. Right. Because my next question was prove it. Right. And they already knew that was the next question. Right. So I, I think when you're dealing with that kind of scenario, it's like when the gravy train is so rich and full, it's better just to get the naysayer out of the way than to, you know, because if the, that one problem can disrupt you know, the, the t entire flow of what's coming, you just get rid of it. Yeah. And that tells you how rich that gravy train, train is when you can walk away from what, half of a $240,000 bill with one phone call. Right. Well, right? and if you think about it, even in regular uh, doctor's visits, cash, if, if you go in to see a doctor, the doctor bills the insurance company $175 to $225, depending on what you were seen for. Again, it's all tied to coding. Right. So if you're seen for something more complicated than just an episodic visit, they get to bill that 225. Mm -hmm. My copay at the door is still the same thing. I still give them $45. So 225, $45 is 20% up front. Mm -hmm. So I pay that copay. They send that bill to Anthem for $225. Anthem writes back to them and says, nice try. That code's worth 85 bucks because we have 10,000 patients in your practice and you get these patients because we give them to you. Hmm. So you may pay us to be part of our network and they do, they pay per head for every head that's in there, comes out of the doctor's office. But if you don't pay to be part of somebody's network, you don't show up anywhere to treat people. You become a cash or concierge medicine practice and people don't necessarily know where to find you. So the visit really was $85. So my 20% of that should be $16. I'm paying three times that amount. And that's the, the doctor knows that. The but doctor I, see, knows that. It, this is, you know, I, you see this in other industries also where the incentivization of, they know that there's the carve outs. They know that they need to build to the max because they're not going to get it anyway. Right. And, and, it, and it drives this intentional higher billing because they've been taught the behavior of you're not going to get paid your fair share. So you have to overbuild to get your fair share. Right. And then, but the only person that can't participate in the math is the consumer. Right. Well, and now when you go get lab work done in America, the labs have caught on to it as well. 
-hmm. Now, labs are required before every surgery in this country. They're required for lots of other things, but every single person in America that has to have a surgery must go and get a lab slip done. Mm -hmm. When you now go to Lab and Quest, which are the two largest labs in the country, they take you in, take you back, get you ready. And then the nurse who's really, a, she's a phlebotomist. Her job is to take your blood. The nurse says, um, these tests are going to be uh, $3,300. Your portion of that is $355. Um, that needs to be paid today. And then you're in the chair. Yeah. You're in the chair. And I looked at the nurse that I got and I said, you know, you're not allowed to do that. She says, I'm sorry. It's, it's what they tell us from corporate. We don't have a choice. I said, what you just did is illegal. I said, because you don't know what my insurance is going to pay or not pay. She goes, I'm sorry, I can't take your blood without you making the payment. Oh, wow. So did you actually have to pay? I actually paid. So as soon as I left there, I thought, okay, I called up Quest. I talked to someone in Syracuse, New York at their corporate office. And I said, do you guys know this is happening at your lab here in Corona? And they said, oh, no, absolutely not. That's not our practice. I said, every single person that was getting their labs drawn around me, nine different cubicles, all were told the same thing. I said, you guys have put this into practice. I said, and somebody needs to get it under control. So, of course, the next time I went back, right? No problem, Mrs. Wood. We'll send you a bill. Yes, you bloody well will, because I'm not <laughs> writing you another check. Because then they owed me money. They owed me $300. My bill was really $35.21. And I had to wait 60 days for my $300. It's not like Quest didn't have $300 in the bank to send to me, <laughs> but I and, had to wait 60 days. So the, these are things that you're straight. It's not that it's unethical, immoral, like you're straight out saying they're illegal. Well, if you look at if you look at how the law is written, the Obamacare law is written. Yes, it borders on. It's definitely unethical, but it does border on illegal in some cases. OK, and. You know, even the, the the scenario to describe where you're you're on the chair under the influence of narcotics and being asked to sign something that binds you to a quarter million dollar contract. You know, when you go into any anything, you get a new job, you hire somebody. Most contracts are argued to not be valid unless both sides had a lawyer review them. And, you know, you and, and you can even argue that in court. Well, that person, you know, didn't even have it reviewed. And meanwhile, you you don't often see that these deals don't stick. There's some there seems to be a bias where somebody that doesn't want to pay or is fighting that a bill is you know not valid or whatever. Uh, courts tend to lean towards pay the bill. Right. Well, you know, you, you figure there's four legal parts to a binding contract, right? You have to have a meeting of the minds. So yeah. that means we have to understand what we're signing. They have to understand what they're pre presenting. There has to be uh, an ethical reason for the contract. So that means everybody's operating in good faith. And then you have to have an agreement on the terms. Mm -hmm. Well, if you tell me as a hospital, listen, you know, this could be a hundred grand. It might be 150. We don't know yet. That's there's no agreement <laughs> for that term. So, you know, there's, there's a couple of components missing in that contract. Yeah. And you know, anything over a thousand dollars has to be, you know, in writing in the United States. Right. So, you know, it, it blows me away how some of the patients that have called us, I mean, I built an entire concierge model because of this cash. Mm -hmm. We have had patients call us for the craziest things. The most recent one right here before Christmas, we have a young lady, she is pregnant five months along. She got COVID. She got very sick. She recovered. She went to have a well baby checkup. They found that she has, uh, I think it's called Potter syndrome. And what that means is the baby's not developing any kidneys. So the baby will not be able and is not currently able to process excrement that they process even at mm -hmm. this age, right? And she is becoming toxic because of it. But the baby still has a heartbeat. Now, this baby will not live more than a few hours, if that, outside the womb. Mm -hmm. If you look at all of the data on this particular thing, this baby's not going to make it. And this is a young girl. She's in her early 20s. Mm -hmm. So now the doctor's office says to her, well, listen, you're on state aid. 
So we have to let this go till the baby no longer has a heartbeat or you'll deliver. And she said, well, I'm, I've, I've got preeclampsia already. I had to have the first baby a C-section. Why, you know, why don't we, as, as horrible as it's going to be, why don't we just do a C-section now? And they said, because you're, you're on uh, Medi-Cal. So this girl got sent home, knowing that that baby's dying every single minute, knowing that that baby is getting toxic every single minute it's in her body. Now her body is becoming toxic and nobody will, will do a C-section and take this child and do what's right. So do the priority is morally right. The priority has, was billing. Priority was billing. And this girl has to keep carrying. She went back in yesterday and they said to her, the baby still has a heartbeat. There's nothing we're willing to do. Wow. So under Medicaid then, so essentially her bills are covered. She wouldn't have to pay. Yeah. And that's where I guess there's the, the least valuable customer. Right, because you know. the state says, listen, we're not giving you $37 for a Benadryl. Unbelievable. So this is this is why we built the business. I mean, there's, I have thousands of these stories, Kasia. I have a cancer patient in New York that is probably the greatest, greatest disposition I've ever seen. She's got months left to live and she's still fighting so that she at least can get rid of all these medical bills because they mm -hmm. survive her and they go against her husband. Right. And they're already struggling. It's not her fault. She's dying. Yeah. You know, she's never been a smoker. It's not like she was, you know, smoking three packs a day. But these stories, they're not unusual, Kashif. This happens all the time. And, and the less you have in this country, the more you'll end up paying. Yeah, that's the sad part is that the it's, it's people don't really understand what insurance is the word makes you think that it's someone's got your back right which is really not what it's 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 a it's a in this healthcare system it's a luxury product where someone's kind of paying for part of your bills right, right. but really what they've done is they now own your healthcare business right it's it's not so much that hey, pay this and if you have a problem someone will cover it yes that happens but it's more like pay this and you now belong to this membership club right. for which they have to figure out between them and the people that offer you service, how they get get paid. And that's where the carve outs come into play right. because to make you believe that you're covered for something, it's got to sound like it's worth $240,000 when really it's worth a lot less. Well, right? we had another patient just a few days ago and he required a specific medication. Right. It's not just in the hospitals they are doing this. So he doesn't have insurance. And he said, can you call the medication in? Which we did. And he called Walgreens and they said, well, we're not going to fill it till you come pay for it because $223. So he called me up and he said, $223. I logged into one of those, um, you know, the good RX or something good like RX, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I log into one of those. I type in the medication. I click on it. I said, well, if you give them this goofy little card that you can get sent to your phone, that same prescription is $23. Yeah. And he said, you have got to be kidding me. I said, no. He goes, I've never heard of this. And I said, well, you're probably living under a rock because everybody knows <laughs> what our ex is, right? And he goes, okay, I do live under a rock, but I'm, I shouldn't be overcharged $200 for a medication I need to live. Yeah. I said, you're right. You shouldn't. It shouldn't but be that again, hard. To... No yeah. one will regulate these people. Good RX is nothing more but a PBM right? Mm -hmm. A prescription benefit manager system that is guaranteeing CVS a certain amount of business and Walgreens a certain amount of business and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not just hospital care cash. If it's not just primary care, it's everywhere. And 84% of what anybody goes to the ED for emergency department or the urgent care can be handled using a mobile medicine, mobile primary care system like mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can join for $9 a month and have unlimited uh, triage and, and episodic visits and get prescriptions refilled. You can do that or you can keep, you know, going into the ED if you don't have insurance and that's $1,500 the minute you walk in the door and you no longer get to walk away from it. People were using hospitals and urgent care as primary care. 
So the last administration in 2018 said no more. So now all of you get to pay the bill, no matter who you are. Hmm. And so with the platform that you have, with what Rolla Health is doing, I know that your personal journey sort of drove it, right? Um, yeah. Why? Why? I, I know that there's a the big proponent of like this. This comes through employers because employers are paying the the brunt of the bill these days, and so the innovation and the desire to save on cost. Uh, drives that innovation, right? Their willingness to save money or have better outcomes. Um, and you're seeing more and more of services like Rolla, uh, even just the, something as simple as the telemedicine that you guys do. But why is it that... Uh, how, so the person that's on Medicaid, how do they... They don't even know. They're not even aware. They're thinking about how do I pay the phone bill next month? How do they even find out that something like this exists? You know, with social media, right? We, we try to do what we can to, to come out on social media. We, um, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly used by many, but certainly not by as many as we could be, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, most of the millennials don't even go to a doctor, mm -hmm. but many of them are on birth control. Well, they have to go somewhere to get it. Or, you know, somebody's got a, a, a thyroid irregularity that they're born with. They have to get that prescription. So... You know, we're able to to create a connection between their primary care doctor and us and then manage their continuing care record. And, you know, people just have to they they've really got to start to look at what their options are. Everybody wants to battle and yell about how much they hate healthcare in America, but most people won't do the research. Yeah. If you and do the research, you'll find people like us. You'll find people that that do have concierge built in. I mean, we get second opinions for people. We get. Uh, where we negotiate claims and bills for people. I mean, we had one kid that went to the Cleveland Clinic and he had a uh, prosthetic robotic surgery and he got a bill for $110,000. Hmm. So once our uh, negotiating arm was done, the bill was eight grand. So That's incredible. People, people have got to, they've got to take control of their own healthcare journey, right? There's accountability. It's like if we go buy a car, you're not just going to walk on a car lot and go, you know, what? I'll take that red one right there. It's pretty. <laughs> you're going to go over and you're going to see if it meets your needs. You're going to ask a lot of questions. And when it comes to financing, you're going to ask because you want to know if you can afford that payment. Mm -hmm. You're going to talk to an insurance person to find out what that's going to cost you to cover the car. You need to know if you can operate within that vehicle because that vehicle is something you want. Well, you are your own vehicle. You mm -hmm. have a responsibility to take as good a care of this as you can. Now, sure, people have genetic issues and all of that. Totally get that. But do the best you can and do your research. And don't yeah. just settle for whatever you get. You know, we, you, you mentioned employers. Employers don't even understand that 70% of their utilization review increase, which they get every year, is driven by just episodic visits. But if you can get your people to use a system like ours, the insurance doesn't get billed. We don't bill the insurance for that episodic visit. Teledoc mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. These other systems do. And they're billing $170 for the visit. Yeah, and I think that's what's driving a lot. So it drives a ton and it gets back to this whole thing where end of the day the people with the less the least resources suffer the most because you it it keeps the it keeps pushing me back to this thought of this pricing is all sort of a facade for how do we put up a price that's retail so that all the carve outs and everything work so that the clinician at the end of the day like you gave the example of the 110,000 turn into 8,000 right the whoever delivered that service was probably okay with the 8,000, meaning that that's what the service was worth. I'm, I'm sure they would have loved to get paid more, right? Doctor but, doesn't even know. Because yeah. if the doctor's on staff, the doctor gets a salary, he goes in, he does his job and he goes home. He that's doesn't it. know what the hospital bills and he doesn't care. Yeah, and the rest is just hospital margin, which to some degree needs to be there for them to be, uh, exist as a nonprofit, as you said, right? <laughs> so, but beyond that, uh, that extra, you know, 90, 100,000, whatever it is in billing, that's all the fluff to make the insurance model work. And why do I point that out? It's because if you have your insurance, 
it all adds up at the end of the day because the carve out gets cut out and everything and you end up paying maybe not 8,000, maybe 20, 25 because you don't know the things that you know. Uh, but the person that walks in with no insurance is still facing the sticker price of the 110 for which that isn't a real sticker price. That's a price that was created in order to you know, accommodate the insurance model of we need to have an inflated retail to satisfy the insurance payer, the employer, to show them the benefits that they've received. We can show them a statement at the end of the month, but then it's carved out and we don't actually pay that amount, right? On, on paper, that's what it cost us, but we then negotiated between us and the hospital, pay them a lot less, right? And and that's the actual amount. So that actual, a lot less amount, that minus 70%, that's what the healthcare delivery cost is, right? But the only person that benefits from that is that's the person that's insured. The person that is uninsured, who has the least resources, who is in the worst state, has no access to the real price. They're paying the inflated price, was literally created to build this model. But they also don't know that if they are uninsured and they walk into a hospital and the hospital says the bill's $3,000, they can say to them, you legally have to take 25% off of that because I'm a cash pay. Right. And the hospital goes, oh, wait, what? It's part of Obamacare. Read the rules. You mm. guys want to stay a nonprofit. You guys want to keep your tax exempt status. If you're the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, you own property that's huge and you don't pay one penny in property taxes. Mm. You don't pay one penny in state or federal taxes. If you want to keep that, the $12 billion a year that you legitimately would owe, if you want to keep that, you need to start following the rules. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, Kashif, is most people don't know the rules. Those that do don't know how to get them enforced. And people will often take the path of least resistance. Nobody likes friction points. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I don't like friction points, but I also don't think that people should be dying in this country because they can't afford an insulin prescription. There was a kid at the university in New York, NYU, and his choice was to pay his tuition for that quarter or to buy his insulin. He was a type one diabetic, diabetic mm-hmm. from when he was very little. His mother found him dead in his, in his dorm room because he chose paying his tuition and he died without his insulin. Insulin is a life saving drug for mm-hmm. anyone that's a type one diabetic. Without it, you die. It's that simple. It should not be $700. $700 for a month or for? For, for an insulin pen. Now, I do believe in, and I'll give Bernie Sanders his credit. He's been really putting a real negative spotlight on this stuff. I think it's come down to somewhere around $270 or $300. But if you are a type 1 juvenile onset diabetic and you're trying to go to college full time, you don't have $300. You mm-hmm. people eat top ramen. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they don't have any money, right? The majority of them don't have any money. They live off of their FAFSA money and... And they just try to get through. So, you know, they don't have money. And that boy died. He was 23 years old. His yeah, mother I, had to bury him. I've heard stories of Americans moving to Canada because they're diabetic. Yeah, that's true. And I didn't understand what that was about until now. Because I think here it's a it, literally a tiny fraction. First of all, it's paid for, right? Uh, but second, even that cost that's paid, uh, when you remove the consumer and it's a direct bill to our government payer system called OHIP, uh, I don't know. Maybe you know this. It's like ten, twelve dollars, something like that. Yeah. Well, remember, I was born in Great Britain, right? So uh, I lived in Scotland for the first portion of my life, and I was actually very sick as a little kid, you know. And of course, they don't tell you what's wrong with you because you're just the common people, which is fine. I don't care. But I was <laughs> hospitalized for long periods of time. Okay. And when we finally came to America, you know, whatever it was that was wrong with me, apparently it was no longer wrong with me. But my parents didn't have to worry about clearing up medical bills before we left the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the American government brought my dad here because he was an aeronautic engineer and they wanted to be able to use whatever brain he had. And he came here and we ended up getting insurance and the insurance was crippling. I mean, my parents were immigrants working in the space industry for the United States and had three girls and couldn't afford the, the uh, employee contribution in an Hmm. employer-based system. So there's, you know, there's a lot wrong here, a lot Hmm. wrong. And it's not just people that have insurance or don't or have Medicaid or Medi-Cal or don't. It's across the board. There's so much billing abuse 
it's just maddening. I mean, even when you look at surgical stuff, now they outsource all of radiology, pathology, x-ray, anesthesia. So, you know, when you go in to have a procedure, you're going to get a bill from an anesthesiologist that may be out of network. Well, if he's out of network, what's he doing in the hospital that I'm in? Mm -hmm. So when they come to you before these surgeries and they're asking you to sign all of this stuff and they say, you know, they may be out of network. I said, then why are they here? They just hang around trying to get work. <laughs> and of course, the hospital looks at you like you're crazy and you're horrible. And I write on there, no out of network specialty. No outsourcing pathology because I'm not willing to pay for it. You guys have a path lab downstairs. Mm -hmm. You guys have pathologists. You guys have radiologists. You don't need to have somebody come from across town so that you can bill me $8,000 for someone to read an MRI. $8,000. Absolutely. MRIs ain't cheap, baby. <laughs> They're not wow. cheap. And, and the, the worst part of all of this is if you go to a hospital here in, um, I'm in Corona right now. So let's say you're in Corona, California. You go to a hospital. You're going to pay less for a service than if you were in Beverly Hills getting the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. So my question to the hospital is, would I pay more money for the same suburban across town? <laughs> and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, no. Because a car is a car is a car. If it's the same car, it's the same price. If I right. go to Nordstrom's and I'm looking to buy a suit, that suit's going to be the same price if I'm in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And it's the same suit. Why are you people changing the rate structure based on a zip code? Mm -hmm. And the answer is they're allowed to move in those CPT codes. So they just pick the one that's more expensive. And they get away with it. Because people are not calling it out. People are not becoming informed it's easy to find this data every single thing on here that we have discussed you can go google and find it that's i guess for most people when you're dealing with you know healthcare, you wouldn't even think of going in that direction you know it's it's this the authority level of the clinician and the hospital and really thinking about more as a life-saving service more than a company or a business that is trying to figure out how to profit from you, you know, you wouldn't even ask the question. Right. You literally look at them and say, please save me. And you mm. know what? These people do hard work, Cash. If these doctors, these nurses, even the administrators, this isn't easy. So I, I have great respect for what they do. But I think that everybody needs to look at why we're doing it the way we do it today mm -hmm. and how we can improve upon that. So we don't have people like this poor girl that's going to now have to wait for the heartbeat to stop. We don't have this, the, the kid dead in his dorm room at NYU. We don't have to have that be part of this story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, people really, we, we've got a responsibility. As a society, we have a responsibility. The hospitals have, the insurance companies, everybody's complicit in this thing. Mm -hmm. And they really need to to look at it and take all of the politics out of it and all of the lobby out of it. The healthcare lobby is the largest lobby in the United States. There are six healthcare lobbyists for every member of the House and the Senate. Think about those numbers. Six to one. If you had six people coming into your office every single day, Cash, of saying, you know, hey, you really need to do this. You really need to do this. Six people. At one point, you'd finally go, for God's sake, just give it to me and get out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you're protecting, it's a $4 trillion industry. You can't say that about many other industries. And when you're protecting the moat around that, you know, that's that's a big pie to, to keep under wraps. And especially when we're now getting to the point where people are starting to understand why we have so many chronic conditions and they're pointing at food and lifestyle and environment. And they're starting to, knowledge is being transferred so much more easily because people through self-care, discovering and sharing things online through their through their influence on social media, etc. And they may not be clinicians, but the proof's in the pudding. They were sick and now they're better, right? And the things that they're recommending aren't take a pill, so they don't need to prescribe. It's more like how to sleep, how to eat. And, you know, I, I don't remember who said this, but somebody said, you know, if you want to have an American disease, go have an American diet because that's the root cause of most of it. So absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2008. Mm -hmm. 
And I was treated with low dose chemotherapy for a year and a half. I had to take an Avonex injection every single week and I got worse. Mm-hmm. And finally, my neurologist, John Chen, God love him, says to me, go gluten-free. I said, what's gluten? Yeah. And he explained it to me and I said, okay, so if I can't hunt it and gather it, don't eat it. He goes, pretty much follow that for now. So I did. And I stayed on the low dose chemo until I found bioidentical hormones. Right. And I started using transdermal hormones. I have not treated MS with a Western medicine since 2010. In 2010, I had seven active lesions on my brain. I had difficulty walking. I had to do furniture walking and wall walking. Fast forward to last year, I went for a checkup because you know, I've been feeling pretty good. Everything seems <laughs> fine. I box, I lift weights, I golf. Everything's fine. They found no more active lesions on my brain. I went back to John. I said, did you guys screw up? He goes, no, <laughs> we have like four years worth of MRIs. We didn't screw up. I said, then how did this happen? He goes, Tracy, because you took control of your health. You did what you needed to do nutritionally in an exercise regimen. And now you're using bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. And you've literally resolved your MS for yourself. So mm-hmm. it can be done. It is a choice. It's a lot of work. Going and getting a pill or getting a shot in your backside, that doesn't take a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. Having to make sure your food doesn't come out of a box. You have to think that through. Mm-hmm. When you go out to eat, you have to be that pain in the ass consumer that says, okay, is there MSG in this? And I'm allergic to that. You, you have to be that person because you can reverse disease. Yes, Chronic yeah. conditions are a choice in many cases, not everybody. But in many cases, they're a choice. And that includes things like type 2 diabetes. You don't have to suffer. If you understood, yeah, if you understand why they're happening, if you, and nobody asked the question why, you know, it's, it's taken for granted that you're supposed to get sick at some point and people kind of sit and wait. For me, is it going to be heart disease? Is it going to be cancer? Like, you know, <laughs> which one is it? Guess what? Both of those you can prevent if you understood why they happen. Yes, there's certain genetic cancers that are, they're going to happen right? And you're going to deal with them. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's really up to you and the choices you make that lead you down that path. But then it's understanding what choices you need to make, right? So and being able to afford them. Yeah, you know, one, one of the one of the correlations, you can look at somebody's diet, like you said, and their health and see that there's a direct link from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine being a poor person in America. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but in order to afford an apartment, you have to be able to qualify for three times the rent in your salary. Well, the average two-bedroom apartment where I live is $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. So you have to be making nine grand a month, which means you got to be breaking $120,000 a year for an apartment. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that and go, okay, we've got people where the mean, where the mean uh, earning is like forty-eight dollars to $52,000. How are these people living? Not very well. So where do they cut back? Vehicles, healthcare, mm-hmm. and food. So when you go on something like, um, I think they're called EBT cards. Um, I don't know what it stands for, but it has something to do with, with food stamp type things, only they're on a card. The people that get these cards, they can only buy certain things. And a ton of what they're allowed to get is not good for them. And mm-hmm. a ton of what they really want is not covered. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yes. So that became a big thing. Somebody dropped a spotlight on that a couple of years ago, and they actually improved what they were allowed to get. But some of that included fresh fresh vegetables and fruit and, and organic things. I mean, we're, we're setting them up to die. We're setting them up to fail. And then when they do get sick and they don't have insurance, they go walking into the emergency room. They've got a bill for Mm $1,500. They can't do it. It doesn't compute. Numbers are hard and they don't add up. And this, I mean, this may be challenging as a thought, but really, if you understand that 66% of personal bankruptcies in the U.S. are due to healthcare costs, Meaning that it's not that uh, people are that poor. It's just the impact is so hard when it happens because the bills are so big. You think about investing and you think about everyone talking about crypto and the stock market, etc. If you're not investing into your health and trying to prevent that calamity from coming, 
you know, financially, that's the foundation. That's where you start. Like, forget about, you know, what you're trying to build. You have to build it. Obviously, you have to think about your kids and future generations. But if you're not going to be able to sustain it, you know, you can you can save up as much money as you want. But if it's all going to get blown on a heart surgery, that's preventable, right? For the most part, it's preventable. So it's not easy. I understand it's difficult. The bills that exist on their own are already enough, but there has to be some cognition of how do I live healthier? You know, how do I sleep? Do the things that are free, sleep better, breathe better, right? Get rid of stress, walk away from it. Do start with the things that you don't even have to pay for. Then start working on things like food and, you know, environment and cleaning things up, etc. Because ultimately, it sounds like to me, based on the American dream, that's one of the best investments you can make is not having to have an American bankruptcy, you know, a healthcare bankruptcy, right? So, so with that, Tracy, I'd like to thank you for joining us. This was awesome. Your perspective and what you get to see at Rolla, you know, that the rest of the world doesn't even hear about incredible um so in case anyone wants to learn more about you know what you guys are up to what you're doing or has questions for you how do they find you guys um well we have obviously we have a website i have to put my glasses on cash <laughs> um so they can go onto the website which is um uh rollahealthshare.org right okay. um or they can call we have a toll-free number that's answered internationally uh which is 866-552-ROLA um, so they can call Rolla, I think is, uh, what is it? Seven, six, five, two. And to, to get set up with you, it like even an individual can call and get set up. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's nine ninety five a month and it covers your whole household. Yeah. And you know, if you're married and you got a couple of kids, you just log on and sign up for the M health package, right? That's your mobile primary care. And you've got, you know, there, there's a nurse there in the middle of the night when something happens and you're not sure what to do. You know, so, sometimes that's kind of all you need just to know that everything is going to be okay. Or maybe it's time to take the next step. And even in that, we find the closest facility that is in your network. You know, we're not just having you running all over town. So there's a lot that, that comes with that membership. Um, but if anybody has questions, just have them call in and we've got people that can take their call and help them. I, I mean, if you can, if anyone listening has a Netflix membership for nine ninety five a month and doesn't have this, you got the three think priorities because what's being offered to you is essentially, you know, a concierge that's going to manage your health, help you through all this stuff. And finally, there's an answer for you. But anyways, I think it all is very clear and apparent. We don't need to uh, keep going over it. They get it. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. This was awesome. And your perspective, like I said, is amazing because you get to see things from the other side. Thank you for joining and sharing today. It was awesome. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Great. Bye.